And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. everybody to hands-on apologetics you have entered into virtual most powerful's apologetics dojo it's great to be with you today kicking off a brand new broadcast week here uh learning explain defend the faith with clarity charity confidence and got a great show in store for us today we're gonna have a good friend bruce sullivan come on as you know bruce uh former uh baptist former Church of Christ minister became Catholic, and uh, he's been a great resource for us, understanding Church of Christ movement. And we're going to talk about a topic I can't believe that we we didn't address this topic with him, because it is a biggie within the Church of Christ, and that is the once saved, always saved doctrine. And uh, so that's what we're going to talk about today on the other side of the break. And on this side of the break, we're going to do our Finding a Fallacy, sharpen our critical thinking skills. Today's Finding the Fallacy. God love the name of this fallacy. It's called the Poo-Poo Fallacy. And uh, we'll learn a little bit about that in a few seconds. Also, we're going to meet an early church father. Of course, today's early church father is not actually a father, but fathers, in that it is the Council of Elvira. So some of you may have heard the Council of Elvira, probably don't really understand its import in church history. We'll talk a little bit about that in a few moments as well. But before we do all that, I want to welcome all of you to the show. So welcome aboard all of you listening on radio and, of course, you live stream peeps. How you doing? And all of you listening via podcast around the world and in the future. It's great to have all of you in the dojo with us today. Uh, man, well, let me give you a little bit of update. What's going on with the Midwest Command Center? Uh, some of you may have noticed that uh, we had a few best of uh, shows last week, and that is because the Midwest Command Center was knocked out of commission <laughs> by a very bad storm. In fact, I think uh, I don't know if it's official or not, but I believe it's. Some people think that actually a tornado went through our area because of the widespread damage. Uh, there's several trees that uh, that are ripped out by the roots, um, and uh, lots of power lines went down. So, yes, the Midwest Command Center was without electricity, hence I was unable to broadcast. But God's good. Uh, the power did come up Saturday, and... <laughs> But unfortunately, uh, you know, we, we I had to move some guests around and things like that. And uh, But anyway, we're back up and running. We're online. And all is good. Thanks be to God. So I uh, just want to give you an update on that. Also, you know, for you uh, followers of my uh, YouTube channel, Apocrypha Apocalypse, uh, unfortunately, you know, with uh, being down without electricity, I, I wasn't able to produce a program. So I'm not sure where we are on the production line as far as the Apocrypha Apocalypse is. I, I know William Albrecht has been uh, churning out some really good videos. So uh, I'm sure his videos have probably picked up the slack. But I, I need to get those up and running. I need to do all sorts of stuff, as you can imagine. Not only that, but also put some food in our fridge because all the food went bad without power. and Oh, it's just crazy stuff. So um, anyway... 
we're back and running again. So, and I also uh, missed my Friday plug for the Apocrypha Apocalypse on YouTube. And uh, yeah, oh, I got to tell you this. This is interesting. Uh, so during the power outage, a fellow from New York showed up at my doorstep saying that he enjoyed my channel so much that he was in the area at an Islamic uh, conference, you know, to evangelize Muslims. And he wanted to, he looked me up, stopped by, and just said, thank you for doing the channel. So if you haven't checked out the channel, by the way, uh, just go to YouTube, type in Gary Machuda or Apocrypha Apocalypse, or William Albrecht probably would also bring it up. And uh, check it out, uh, because uh, it is out there. And uh, by the way, so long story short, got to meet with this fellow uh, for coffee since my house is dead. And uh, we found a coffee house uh, near to his conference center. And uh, he showed some of my books to a speaker at the conference who knew of me and wanted to meet me. And so I got a chance to uh, to meet in person Anthony Rogers, who's a, a Calvinist. Uh, he cranks out videos uh, mostly against Muslims. Uh, black uh, Hebrew uh, group, um, also uh, sometimes uh, rabbinic Judaism, and also Catholicism. So uh, very nice guy. Got a chance to chat a little bit, but my phone was blowing up, and <laughs> I was needed back at the Midwest Command Center. So, but it was nice to you know uh, have a little break in all the the uh, the fun that goes along with a heat wave with no air conditioning. <laughs> and, you know, get to meet somebody that I have actually have rebuttal videos on the Apocryphal Apocalypse on. So it's all good. You know, God God is uh, God is good. So um, without further ado, why don't we jump to our Finding the Fallacy. Today's Finding the Fallacy, like I said, is the poo-poo fallacy. The poo-poo fallacy is, um, I like names like that, it's informal logic that consists in, of dismissing an argument as being unworthy of serious consideration. Scholars generally characterize the fallacy as a rhetorical device in which a speaker ridicules an argument without regarding uh, responding to the substance of the argument. Uh, so it's not, it doesn't address the argument per se, but what the poo-poo fallacy basically does is it kind of looks down its nose at an uh, argument and prejudging it as being unworthy of serious attention. So this fallacy, I think, falls within the same category as the uh, uh, appeal to ridicule, um, ad hominem, that type of thing. It's a misdirection, and, um, and it's a rhetorical device. You know, it's, it's a way to make it seem as if you respond to an argument when you really don't simply by ridiculing the argument itself. So whenever somebody does it, like the ad hominem fallacy and the appeal to ridicule, what you need to do is uh, you need to refocus the attention back where it's supposed to be. So just say, you know, you've done a great job ridiculing the argument. Now, once you actually address the substance of what I just said, right? And uh, is this used in, in apologetics? Yeah, it's used a lot, especially on social media and uh, and especially like live Q&A when a speaker is thrown for a loop on a, you know, a really good substantive uh, response. 
Uh, many times they, they will answer a different question other than what was asked, uh, or they'll try to do one of the, you know, appeal to ridicule or the poo-poo fallacy to kind of make it seem as if there is a response when actually there isn't. So it's a, it's a way of kind of dan- uh, tap dancing a, around an issue. All right, let's meet our early church father for today, who is, like I said, a, a church council. It is the Council of Elvira, so it's a local council. It's not an ecumenical council, but it's a very influential one. Uh, the city of Elvira, uh, which is near the present city of Granada in Spain. Uh, there were 19 bishops, including the celebrated uh, Osius of Cordova, uh, were present, along with 26 priests and deacons. So it's a very large council. The council was, a, was of a reformed nature. A large part of its 81 canons reflect earlier legislation of African origin. Uh, numerous dates are assigned as to when this council met, the extreme dates being 250 A.D. and uh, 700 A.D. Um, so neither of them are taken seriously today. The other dates have been proposed, like 300, 306, 306, 313, things like that. So Jurgen's uh, Faith Early Fathers, which we use for this segment, basically says uh, the opinion today is divided between two possibilities, either 300 or 306 A.D. So that's narrow enough to get a feel for when the council met. Uh, there, like he says, there were 81 canons um, proposed at this local council, which is quite a few. Of course, they're all disciplinary. And uh, they're interesting to read. Um, I I suggest if you ever feel like today is the worst time in church history, okay, <laughs> read the canons of the Council of Elvira in, back in 380. We often tend to idolize the past and, and make it seem as if uh, there were no problems. Everything was fine and dandy, and everybody was good moral people, except for maybe a few groups here and there. When, in fact, the early church was just as much of a mess as it is today. Of course, we face uh, new problems, but you'd be surprised how few those are that are actually new. A lot of it was something that the, the saints have been fighting you know, for uh, centuries. So read the, the Council of Elvira's uh, canons. If you ever feel disparaged or, or not disparaged, uh, depressed or, you know, just uh, don't feel confident. Uh, one thing I do want to point out is uh, Canon 38. I think this is a great example of how you can have a writing in an early church document that doesn't explicitly say something, but it teaches something that we hold to today. For example, it says this, During a voyage at sea in a foreign place, or when there is no church in the neighborhood, one of the faithful who has kept the baptismal, uh, kept baptism unimpaired and who is not married twice is able to baptize a catechumen when there's uh, the necessity of illness, provided that uh, if one survives, he is to bring him to the bishop so that it may be completed through the imposition of his hands. And as you can tell right here, it assumes that there are two sacraments, sacrament of baptism and the sacrament of confirmation. Both are associated but distinct. And that comes from the Council of Bavaria, today's early church father. We're going to be talking with Bruce Sullivan. We're going to talk about one safe, very safe.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. Well, we're going to talk about uh, once saved, always saved with our good friend Bruce Sullivan. As you know, Bruce, uh, former Church of Christ minister. He has a fantastic book. If you can get a hold of it, it is Christ in His Fullness which documents Bruce's journey from Southern Baptist to the pulpits of the Church of Christ, and ultimately his uh, entrance into the Catholic Church. And uh, as you know, also Bruce is a Catholic deacon, and he uh, does lots of work in the parish areas, uh, evangelism, of course, uh, his ministry is a deacon. He's appeared on numerous Catholic outlets, television shows, and, of course, here on Hands-On Apologetics. He's, he's one of our favorites. So, Bruce... How you doing? Welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I was wondering who it was you were describing there for a minute, but uh, it's always <laughs> great to be here. <laughs> so tell me, uh, you know, we got knocked out by a bad storm last weekend. Uh, did that affect you at all? This past weekend it didn't, but I have pulled out my generator four times since April, once for three days, once for four days. And so uh, when it rains, it pours. We've been having we've been having some of that, but we didn't lose power last week. Oh, okay, good, good. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it's it's been a weird, weird summer. And uh, and I'm trying to think of a segue how I could get from <laughs> storms in the summer to once saved, always saved. I don't think I could do that though. Uh, but. Yeah. Uh, but you uh, okay? I'm I'm just going to abandon the tent the the attempt. And just jump right in. So as, a, a, you know, it's a, you mentioned this in your email that uh, you went through the topics that we've talked about on the show. And I couldn't believe that we didn't talk about once saved, always saved. Yeah, it's, um, I know it doesn't really apply to, like, my digital information on my computer because I've, I've lost things. Um, so, um, but uh, I know that once saved, always saved is something I, I grew up thinking one thing. You know, I grew up a Southern Baptist, and they had one perspective on it. Churches of Christ had another perspective on it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Southern Baptists are, you know, are influenced by Calvinism and have the typical evangelical perspective, uh, reform perspective, that uh, once a person has been truly uh, validly saved, uh, they can never lose their salvation. Churches right. of Christ are, are closer to the um, uh, Catholic position in that they believe that uh, a person— can be saved, they can be baptized uh, and, and, and enter into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, and then apostatize, abandon their faith, and be lost. Um, and so uh, that issue itself, by the time I became Catholic, was not a problem, because I'd already been in the Church of Christ for so many years, and, and they had disabused me of that prior, uh, I'm just going to call it what it is, false teaching. Yeah. Yeah, so you live this. You know, you live both sides of the fence in regards to this issue. Um, yes. Yeah, yes. go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, after you. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I've, I've seen it. I've seen it's an impact. Yeah, I, li- I live both sides of it, <laughs> and uh, and they they both have their um their impact on your on your conduct and your behavior. Um, uh, and so yeah, we end up having these two extremes. You know, going back and forth between either presumption or despair, mm-hmm. and 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 sometimes in the Church of Christ. Uh, on a more more rigid set of the versions of them, you'd have, you know, once saved, uh, possibly saved, once saved, never saved. <laughs> you know, you, you, no assurance. You know, 
of salvation in a sense. And then on the other side, you know, as a Baptist, you know, had absolute assurance of salvation, supposedly. And, um, and then because of that, uh, that, would, that would factor in to my behaviors when facing strong temptation. Um, and I don't think I was unique in that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, in terms of Church of Christ, uh, they, they reject once saved, always saved. You kind of alluded that there is different opinions as to how that works. Um, how does that differ from like a Catholic understanding? You know, I, I think a, a, you know, the churches of Christ to a large degree lack a really developed systematic theology. Like I mentioned before, they've got kind of like points of dogma. They're like a connected dot picture, and the dots aren't always connected. And so while they would deny once saved, always saved, as far as working out how that works, mm-hmm. um, you know, to what degree a believer can have assurance, etc., that can vary considerably among various preachers or schools of thought. So that, for example, you know, the Catholic view is that you know, we enter into a saving relationship, you know, with Jesus Christ at our baptism, and, and in that sense, we're saved, and then we're, we're being saved, and we hope to be saved in, in, in the final analysis. In other words, what we're doing is we're entering into a relationship where we're walking with Jesus, and as we continue to walk with Him, sustained by His grace, you know, we have that hope, uh, not wishful thinking, but that hope that God who wants us saved more than we ourselves want our saved will give us everything we need without uh, trumping our freedom, though. And, um, and in the Churches of Christ, when I was in it, we had, I went around teaching, um, presenting a, a sermon on the assurance of salvation, because many in the, in the Churches of Christ were um, so extreme on the once saved, always saved, that they generally never felt that they could have any kind of assurance. And so I had a, a lesson that came from First John uh, chapter 1, verse 9, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his son Jesus um, cleanses from all sin. And then the last chapter of that book, First John 5, 7, I, uh, 5, 13, I write these things to you, believe in the name of Jesus Christ, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And in that lesson, we were stressing the fact that all those verbs and things were in the present tense. If we are walking with Jesus, then we had that relationship. If we do, if we do believe in Him, you know, uh, you know, i.e., that the, the full uh, concept of what it means to believe in Christ, you know, if we, if that describes what we're doing, where we're at, then we are, in a sense, now experiencing eternal life, and we can have, therefore, you know, confidence that God is, is with us on that, rather than you know, the idea that I'm walking in and out of the light all the time. My, my relationship with God is very tenuous. And so for a lot of people who don't believe in once saved, always saved, they're not careful, they'll get into a, a view that their relationship with God is, is, is kind of tenuous um, in a way, which that would not concur with a Catholic understanding. You know, we don't believe our relationship with God is tenuous. It's very solid, but it doesn't, it does not, it should not lead to presumption that denies, you know, my free will to actually choose to turn my back on Christ and walk away. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, good, very good. So, um, I don't know how I don't know how you want to approach this. Do you want to uh, maybe look at the uh, both sides? You know, starting with a, a Baptist view of uh, once saved, always saved, and then why that doesn't work, or whatever you want. Yeah, 
That'd be good. I was thinking about the idea that the fact is, um, you know, this idea once saved, always saved, you know, is I understand historically is rooted in, you know, John Calvin's idea, uh, mm-hmm. and Cal and, and and lots of Protestants are Calvinistic to varying degrees, you know, and and Baptists have inherited a lot uh, from John Calvin, though not as much as you know, real hardcore Presbyterians. Um, and it seems like, you know, the 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 idea behind it is, you know, we're, we're exalting the sovereignty of God in all things. And, and therefore, you know, it, it, to the point that you get into, as you know, election, et cetera, so those who are saved have been elected to be saved, et cetera. And if fundamentally, I can do nothing to earn my salvation. It's all God's doing, if you will. If I can't do anything to earn it, I guess I can't do anything to lose it either, you know, because it had nothing to do with me in the first place other than a simple profession of faith, if you will. And so I think that's the root of it. And, this, you know, the scriptural passages they go to to support it most often that I've seen, and there's many of them, but there's two that come to mind, are in, in John chapter 10, the Good Shepherd Discourse, and in Romans chapter 8, uh, where Paul's listing a whole bunch of things that can't separate us from the love of God. And when we go to John chapter 10, you know, Jesus says, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So that is a passage that they lean heavily upon to support the idea that once I'm saved, I can't lose my salvation. Um, and closely akin to that is in Romans 8, you know, beginning in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through whom who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Case closed. There it is. <laughs> Plainly states it. You can't lose your salvation, right? <laughs> right. Wrong, yeah, and... Right? I, I... And, Which is you know, right or wrong. <laughs> people might think, uh, well, no, they couldn't have rested this entire doctrine on just a couple of verses. But actually, there might be two or three other ones, but it really isn't a lot of text, is it? There's not a whole lot of text. Um, it, it, it comes back to some favorite text coupled with basically, you know, you know a theology, you know, mm-hmm. a, a theology of, of predestination, a theology of grace, a theology of works that, that impacts all this. Um, you know, but when we look at those passages, and, and, and neither one of these passages, in my opinion, is dealing with eternal security. You know, when you look at um, that one I just read from Romans chapter 8, you know, everything in that list basically is something external to the believer that they have no control over. Famine, nakedness, perils, perils, swords, uh, death, you know, all these things. And the point is that nothing Nothing external to us can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, but you don't see in that list, he doesn't say anything even remotely like uh, that neither fornication nor adultery nor theft nor murder nor gluttony nor greed nor any other sin that we might commit can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It, 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 you know, there, there's nothing listed in there about sin. I've heard that um, you know, some Protestant commentators have said, since nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God, that 
since the human being, the human person, the believer himself is a part of creation, that not even the believer can separate themselves. That's a real stretch. Because everything mm-hmm. that's listed there is, you know, external to the believer, which is comforting. It should comfort us. We should take comfort from it, but we shouldn't derive from it a doctrine that denies what other passages of Scripture, you know, plainly teach. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's an important distinction. You know, it's external or internal, because uh, in in a way, it's like the Christian believer is invincible, right? There's there's nothing outside of us that can separate us from the love of God. Uh, and so as long as we're in a state of grace, you know, to use Catholic lingo, uh, we're invincible, right? <laughs> we can't lose. But, and that, you know, yeah. we can refuse God. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. What you just said, what, you know, just clicked with, you know, when you said state of grace using Catholic lingo, that's a really good point to make because, you know, what the Protestant is saying, you know, I'm being saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. We're talking about state of grace. You know, even those differences uh, underscore a difference in how we're approaching salvation. And I guess we can talk about that after the break. All right. Very good. We're chatting with Bruce Sullivan and talking about the doctrine of once saved, always saved. More to come right after this. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Bruce Sullivan, talking about once saved, always saved. And right before the break, uh, the music kind of snuck up on us. And you were going to talk about, uh, you know, some important distinctions in terms of theological background between Catholics and Protestants. Yeah, and, and the terminology, because you made the statement about uh, you know, you said, you know, state of grace to use Catholic lingo. And it's like, well, yeah, the, the lingo has a lot to do with everything. As you know, words mean something. Yeah. They convey ideas. We put our theology into words. And so, you know, in Catholics, we're talking about salvation, and we're talking about the uh, uh, whether we're, quote, saved or not. Um, we, 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 we talk about being in the state of grace. And for Protestants, most Protestants, uh, they're going to talk about being, quote, saved. Well, you know, being saved, that word itself, saved, is in the past tense. <laughs> and, and so they view it, you know, theologically as, as a done deal. It's something that occurred in the past. It's a done deal. And therefore, you know, God's not going to go back on his word. You know, he, you know, he, he, he saved us. Whereas for Catholic, we talk about being in the state of grace. Uh, that's talking about something that's a present reality, a present tense. It's a process. And hence that fits more with what we see the language uh, you know, in First Corinthians uh, chapter one, verse eighteen, when Paul talks about the message of the gospel, you know, uh, and, and, and what it means to those who are quote being saved, and so it comes back to this, you know, idea that in, in, in the Catholic life, salvation, sanctification, all these things, they have a past, present, and future tense to them. In a certain sense, when that baby's baptized, when I'm baptized, you know you've been saved. Now, as you live your life, you're in the process of being saved. And one day, you know, if you continue walking in Christ, you hope that you will be saved for all eternity. None of it's to imply anything tenuous, but it's to recognize that that basically what God is inviting us to is a relationship, and a relationship is never a once-and-done thing. Um, you know, there's some husbands may have thought that when they got married and their marriages don't last. You know, it's, it's not a once-and-done thing. It's a 
it's a it's a it's a daily reality. It's a process. It's it's, it's a reality to be lived out on, and that's why, uh, you know, the the Catholic approach to it is really the one that upholds not only you know God's mercy the most, but upholds human dignity because salvation is not something that dehumanizes us and 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 takes away our freedom. It's something that gives our freedom new meaning, freedom to walk with Christ, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Very important distinctions, too. Um, so, okay, so Romans 8, um, you touched a little bit about it. On um, uh, Anything further you want to do? Only that, it, you know, again, you know, Catholics need to draw great comfort from this passage. It's a great passage. Uh, we don't reject it. We just reject the, the Protestant, the typical Protestant spin put on it, you know. Uh, and so, and, and, and it's very similar, you know, to what, you know, we read in John 10 with the Good Shepherd, which, um, you know, I read before that one, you know, again, you know, no one will snatch them out of my hand. That, that's like a condensed version of Romans 8. <laughs> Romans 8, gives you all the types of things that are external to you that might snatch, you know, try to snatch you out of his hand or separate you from the love of God. You know, J- Jesus just says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Again, we're talking about external forces. You know, if, 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 you, are be, if you are resting in the hands of the good shepherd, uh, you're in good hands, even better than an all-state agent. You know, <laughs> you know, no, you, 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 you know no one's going to be able to touch you, you know, without God's permission. You, know, you, they, you, you, you are like you said earlier, invincible, um, has nothing to say whether or not I can change insurance agencies, use all state one, you know, I can, I can get a new agent and now I'm no, I'm no longer in good hands. Well, by the same token here, you know, Jesus doesn't say I can't jump out of those hands, you know, uh, in fact, in fact, uh, sheep are known to go astray. <laughs> and then that whole passage about the good shepherd and the, and the sheep and they hear my voice and, 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 and all that's in present tense, present tense. You know, am I listening to the voice of the Good Shepherd? If I'm listening to his voice, I'm one of his sheep, and I'm in his hands, and in and, and, and a place that's a safe space where I cannot be harmed. It says nothing about where I can be one of those dumb sheep that also stops listening to the Good Shepherd and, and wander out of his, away from his protection. Right, exactly. Yeah, and, uh, and again, if memory serves me correctly, it, um. Isn't it like the present continuing sense, like in the Greek, that, you know, as long as you uh, hear his voice and continue with him, you know, no one can take you out of the hand? And that implies that you could stop, right? Yeah, you know, from what I understand, that's that's the way it is in the original, uh, though Mm -hmm. I do not purport to be a Greek scholar. um, and, And just in one way, even when you're not a Greek scholar, uh, for all the listeners and stuff out there, uh, if you just look at a lot of different English translations, especially the more literal ones, and you see how actual scholars do translate something when they're not letting their theology infiltrate it too much, and when you mm-hmm. start looking at those passages like the one we're looking at in John 10, you're going to see it's, it's, in the pre- it's in the English present tense for a reason. You know, yeah. they hear my voice. It's not my sheep heard my voice, you know. Uh, my sheep are the ones who heard it at one point. No, they're the ones who hear my voice, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one thing that really helped me kind of conceptualize that is uh, if you picture— actually, I had a magazine, and I made an illustrator, like, make this little cartoon because I thought it was a good analogy. It's like uh, picture a rock that's going to fall on someone, and the rock casts a shadow where it's going to hit. And so if someone says, if you stay out of 
that shadow, you'll never get hit, right? So yeah. it's kind of like if you, if you, as long as you're continually hearing the shepherd, following the shepherd, doing the will of the shepherd, you're outside of where that rock is going to hit you, so to speak. But, you know, if yeah. you transgress those and you stop doing it, then, then it's, uh, you know, the other will result. Yep. And I know for me, again, neither one of those passages, you know, contextually are, are, are doing what Calvinists typically try to spin them into doing, but there are passages of Scripture that actually deal with this subject about, you know, telling a believer what the believer, you're giving warnings to believers about their conduct, about their salvation, uh, giving them warnings. And, and the passage of Scripture, to me, that is the most explicit and, 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 and inarguable, though I have heard an interesting argument against it, which I'd like to share, is the, third, the entire third chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. You know, um, when you read the entire third chapter to the letter to the Hebrews, he begins by saying that, you know, he's, he's addressing brothers and sisters, partakers in a heavenly calling. What do we commonly call those people? I think we call them Christians, right? right. Christians. Yeah. He's writing to Christians, brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, and he starts urging them to um, telling us that, you know, we are in his household, uh, Jesus' household, verse 6. If we hold firm the confidence and the pride that belong to hope, if we hold firm that confidence, and then goes on to give this great illustration from the life of the children of Israel, you know, quoting, uh, you know, from, from the Old Testament today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as they did in rebellion, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and he goes on to say, take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, if only we hold first, hold our first confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? But with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not those who were disobedient? So we see that they're unable to enter because of unbelief. And, you know, so he's using the children of Israel, and interestingly enough, also parallels unbelief and disobedience and obedience and belief, which St. Paul does uh, in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 1 and chapter 16, he opens and closes uh, his letter to the Romans with the phrase, the obedience of faith. Uh, and so here we see that you know, the children of Israel were disobedient, which is slash the same thing as being unbelievers, and because of that, they did not enter his rest. They'd entered into a covenant relationship with God. He led them through the waters of baptism, if you will, through the Red Sea, and, 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 and on that journey to the Promised Land, which is this life. Everybody's always recognized that, the fathers, you know, through that journey through the wilderness, sustained by manna, etc. They didn't make it because they didn't persevere, and he's telling Christians, Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. I cannot think of a greater waste of pen and ink, or papyrus and ink, if you cannot lose your salvation. You know, what's the whole point of this chapter if a believer cannot turn and fall away from the living God? 
Yeah. Yeah, good point. It's like, what, is this like some giant hypothetical, you know, or a counterfactual uh, demonstration or something? Yeah, you're right. It, it seems completely foreign to the context. I actually have heard that. The, the, I was in a, a discussion one time uh, on a Catholic forum. It's been at least 20 years ago, and we were discussing eternal security with a Calvinist, and... I brought up this passage because this passage to me is, is, is it pretty much says it all. And mm-hmm. he came back with the notion that, well, in actuality, it's not talking to Christians. The writer, he assumed it was Paul, the writer here um, knows that these people think that they're Christians. And so he's entertaining that notion with them, writing to them, uh, you know, it's kind of, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a condescending way, like, you know, treating them as if they're Christians, but they really weren't. Because if they really were, they couldn't follow us. So here you've got your theology. I've got my narrative. I've got my theological conclusion. A, a real Christian can never fall away. And so here I've, and I've got a passage of Scripture that seems to be writing to Christians about falling away. Well, since I know a priori you can't ever fall away, these must not really be Christians, and the writers just kind of entertained that notion to humor them. Hmm. How do you answer that, Gary? I mean, Gary, you, know, you, you just went over the fallacy, the logical fallacies, every, every program the first 10 minutes. I have no idea what this fallacy is. It's almost like telling me if I'm talking to somebody about the rocks and the moon, and they say, well, you're assuming it's not made out of green cheese. I, I just, I don't know what to say. I don't know what the logical <laughs> fallacy is here. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you found a new fallacy. Uh, we, we could call it the, the green cheese moon fallacy. That's a, there we go. There we go. Okay, so we're chatting with Bruce Sullivan. Talk about once saved, always saved. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. We're chatting with Bruce Sullivan. Talk about once saved, always saved. And uh, Bruce brought up uh, Hebrews. Uh, Epistle of Hebrews, where it talks about believers falling away. And, you know, Bruce, I, if you're going to take that interpretation that these are people that thought they were believers but really weren't or something like that, it it really does undermine your confidence that you you are a Christian, right? Because, I mean, these people, uh, you know, clearly seem to have uh, experienced Christianity. They They were enlightened and so on, and then they fell away. You bring up an excellent point because one of the greatest ironies of this once saved, always saved doctrine is that you can never really be sure. <laughs> and, and while they're sitting there saying, I want, to, I, I, want to, I want full assurance, I have full assurance of my salvation, but because, unlike the Catholic faith, they don't have this concept of, 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 be, of, of a process of being saved, of being in a state of grace, of, of walking, and, 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 and we still have freedom, etc., you end up having to come up with the two classes of Christians, because here I am. I got saved. I, got, I, 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 went to, I went down the front of the aisle. I got saved in a Calvinist church, da-da-da-da-da, and I'm a, I'm a grown man. And lo and behold, all my sins don't disappear. You know, I mean, you know, Jesus washed them away in his blood, but I still have these tendencies, and I keep doing certain things. I'm struggling. And then so it ends up creating two classes of, of, of Christians, supposedly. You've got the carnal, backslidden Christian, and then you've got the one who never really was saved in the first place. And so here I am, I'm struggling, I'm, I'm, I'm 25 years into my adult Christian life, and I'm struggling with, with sins and temptations, etc. How do I know 
if I ever really was saved? I mean, am I struggling with this because I never really, really was saved? Or maybe I'm just kind of backslidden or a carnal Christian. And the only way you can really know is you have to wait until you die, <laughs> uh, basically. Um, and that's, that's something that's kind of an irony because it's supposed to give you comfort that you that you are secure in Christ, but there really is no security, um, ultimately. No assurance until you're, 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 de- you're dead and you pass through the pearly gate. Right. Second yeah. here, um, I, I think my lawsuit is like, I'm trying to close my window. I'm here in my pickup truck, and there's a guy with a dump truck <laughs> wanting to bring a load of gravel <laughs> to somebody. And I think he's going to ask me directions. I don't know if I wave him off and say, no, I'm on the radio. But, <laughs> oh, yeah, he's going to come ask me a question. So uh, 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 just one second. I'm going to holler and say just a second. Okay, so uh, anyway, yeah, that that's an important point because the confidence for once saved, always saved. Um, it, it, when you look at Scripture and the evidence against that, uh, really the only way to save the system is to assume, well, this might be hypothetical. These might be Christians that think they're saved but they really aren't. And it's interesting, in Kelvin's writings, he himself uh, talks about this kind of false grace that gives all the impressions of salvation, but it doesn't persevere to the end. And so when push comes to shove, uh, confidence in salvation uh, is really no difference whether you hold it onto once saved, always saved or not. There's no benefit. Uh, Bruce, are you with exactly. us? Exactly. I am. Um, that's never happened at all. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so they finally drove up down this road and tried to talk to you during the program. Um, the deal here is, you know, so that irony, like we just mentioned, but, you know, and here's the thing, Catholics, you know, our perspective, again, based upon the fact that it's a relationship and state of grace, our perspective is neither despair nor presumption. It's hope. It's confidence in the mercy of God. It's recognition that God will provide all that we need because he wants us saved even more than we do. In fact, the fact that he wants us saved more than we do, it's also witnessed to, if you will, in the letter to the Hebrews. In the letter to the Hebrews, for example, he, he, he's encouraging these struggling Christians and saying, you have not yet resisted in your struggle against sin to the point of blood. Jesus did. Jesus shed blood for my salvation. And, and how many times are we necessarily not even willing to shed blood for our own salvation? You know, we, we cave in so easily. So Jesus obviously desires our salvation more than we do. And so while we don't allow that to cause presumption on our part, it certainly staves off despair, and we realize that the only enemy, the really the only enemy to our salvation that we really have to fear is ourselves, ourselves. Will, will we just keep walking or not? Will we, will we just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus or not? When we fall down, will we come back to him or not? The only real enemy that can threaten our salvation is the guy I'm looking at in the mirror. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's, uh, oh, and by doing that, you preserve, you know, confidence in your relationship with God, and you also preserve free will, that what I do actually does matter. It's the most dignifying thing in the universe, isn't it? You know, what I do yeah. does matter. That's, that's why hell, hell exists, because my actions matter. Heaven exists. My actions matter. Not my actions. You know, when you hear actions and works, the Calvinist starts getting you know, sweating, cold sweat. He thinks you're talking about works righteousness and me earning something before God. We're not talking about that. The catechism is clear that initial justification, the initiative belongs completely to God. He initiates that process. 
we simply respond to his grace. But afterwards, we begin a relationship of God giving grace and me responding or not responding, me cooperating or not cooperating. And my cooperation or lack thereof is a real cooperation, and it has real consequences. Uh, thankfully, he gives us all these sacramental graces to strengthen us so that our will becomes more and more conformed with his the further we go down our spiritual journey. And that drives away despair, but it protects us from presumption as well. Yeah, yeah, very well said. So with Church of Christ, uh, you know, do they hold on to free will? Um, you know, yeah. what aspects would they say amen to? No, they, 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 they definitely believe in, in free will. In fact, they're a little bit fuzzy in whether or not uh, grace is required to, 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 to undergird human free will, because that sounds kind of subjective to them, and they're kind of afraid of subjectivity and the Holy Spirit and things like that, generally speaking. But no, no, they mm-hmm. definitely would hold to free will. In fact, uh, if they're not careful, they borderline, you know, uh, being a Pelagians almost, you know, in a certain really? sense. Um, that everybody's capable simply of, of, of obeying the commandments of God, uh, by pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. At least that was what I was exposed to, to a large degree. But, but I've been out of that denomination for 30 years now, and every once in a while I get a glimpse and see that uh, evangelical ideas are infiltrating more and more um, to, hmm. to the mainstream. Um, but again, uh, theological points of dogma, but not always well-connected. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So uh, evangelicalism has finally made it into the, uh, the rural areas of Kentucky. <laughs> it has. It has. The, the gospel has come. Of course, the Catholic Church was here already for 200 yeah. years. But anyway, it, it, the, 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 the gospel is finally being preached in South Central Kentucky. Um, yeah. So it's been good. But that's, it, it is a topic that, that I know I struggle with. You know, I, you know it, 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 the fruit of once saved, always saved, it, it brings you to presumption. There are times, you know, when you know, I've talked to people, they're struggling with a decision in their life that involves as moral consequences, and they're an evangelical of some kind, and they'll say something to the line, along the lines, well, I know that this might not be, um, you know, God's ideal will for my life, and it, and it may kind of impact my crown in heaven, but at least I know I'm saved. At least I know I'm saved. And, and that, that is one of the very real fruits of this. And while we as Catholics should have confidence in God's mercy, confidence uh, and have sure, a solid hope for salvation because of our confidence in God, the idea that it's a once and done, and therefore I can just you know, be pretty nonchalant and casual about my spiritual life, uh, you'll not find anything remotely like that in the sacred scriptures or in the teachings of the church fathers or the teachings of the church today. Vigilance yeah. is called for, but vigilance has confidence in God. Yeah, absolutely. And it really highlights the importance of confession, too. Uh, oh, yeah. Because uh, for someone who holds on to once saved, always saved, if they commit grave sin, uh, they figure, well, I just probably wasn't truly saved, so I need to get saved again, you know, and you lose that confidence where we could go to confession and confess our sins to God and receive absolution, which is another confidence that uh, people that don't have that sacrament are missing. I think that's a good point you're making there because I, I, you know, the absence of sacrament confession coupled with perfectionist expectations that when I get saved, I'm going to be transformed, I'm not going to be the same ever again, da-da-da-da. And then when real life hits the road, you know, the rubber meets the road, and I see that I'm actually still struggling with the same old things, you know, your brain has to give somewhere. And so you start you know, coming up with a theology that fits, the narr- that fits what you're seeing around you. And for a Catholic doesn't have to do that kind of gymnastics because we already recognize 
oh, no, no. When, you know, when, you're, when you're saved, when you're baptized, when you, when you start walking with Jesus, uh, you know, it's highly possible, if not probable, you're going to stumble and fall a few times. And when you do, that doesn't cause you to question whether or not your baptism was valid, whether or not you ever were, quote, saved in the, in the first place, or whether or not you ever were in a state of grace. You just recognize that, hey, I, I, need, I need to get back on track. And the sacrament of confession does that for us without coming up with some kind of, you know, wacky theology that actually turns much of the Bible on its head. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Well, uh, Bruce, uh, now you're a Catholic deacon now, and uh, you know, I, uh, every time when you're on, I always ask, uh, so what's been cooking in your ministry? Uh, uh, slow down at all in the summer? No. <laughs> it has not slowed down. Uh, preached four times yesterday. Uh, wow. Greater program of the day. Got Bible study uh, next week. But uh, it has, and we got communion services I'm doing every day this week because our, our priests, the Fathers of Mercy, are on retreat. So pray for the Fathers of Mercy. They do great jobs preaching all over the world, and their community is having their official uh, community retreat this week. And so uh, the deacons in the parish were doing our communion services every day for them. But uh, again, I really want to encourage any man out there that he even remotely feels that he might be called to the diaconate to investigate that. You know, it's a discernment process. And if God is calling you to be a permanent deacon, uh, you're not going to be happy until you answer that call. And if you answer that call, he will work in ways in your life that will blow your mind. But that's something you discern with the church. And, uh, and even if you discern, if you enter into that process, and after a couple, three, four years, you discern prior to ordination that this isn't what he's calling me to do, you will not regret uh, that time spent in formation, uh, studying, uh, being guided uh, spiritually, etc. So it's, it's all a matter about whatever it is God's calling you to do, uh, be open to it. And for me, uh, I'm always consider myself at my sanest immediately after Holy Communion. Uh, prior to Holy Communion, I don't know. But immediately after Holy Communion, my brain is clear and I am sane and when you go to Holy Communion, ask yourself what it is God wants you to do, and the types of impressions and things that you get immediately after Holy Communion, in my opinion, are, are guidances from the Holy Spirit. And for me, I couldn't go to Mass for 15 years without receiving Jesus and then thinking about the document. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, Bruce, hey, thank you so much again for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. Next time I'll put up a roadblock so no trucks come down this road. <laughs> Okay, my friend. All right, take care. Uh, it's Bruce Sullivan, and uh, yeah, yeah, pick up a copy of his book. Fantastic book, Christ in His Fullness. And talk about fantastic. Coming up next, I impact Catholic talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse show. Thanks so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing called hands on all Jesse. Bye, bye, everyone. Have a great day.